Welcome to the Ray of Hope Church podcast. We believe that hope changes everything, so get ready for an encouraging message from the Word of God. We pray that you would receive wisdom and revelation as you grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Stand with me this morning. So good to see you. We're glad that you are here and watching online. We're so appreciative of everybody who's come to lift up the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're so excited about what you're doing in our lives. We are here to learn of you and feel your presence and your spirit in our life. Lord, speak to our hearts. Let us be receptive. Let your word do what your word does in us and through us. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm glad you're here today. We've been on a series called Uncommon Christianity, and uh, certainly the Lord doesn't want us to be common or ordinary or average. And one of the things that I want to do today is combine that thought with uh, Palm Sunday because you need to know what Palm Sunday is all about. How many of you know that this is a very special, special time that we need to understand from the Word of God? If you have your Bible this morning, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 21. And I want to read verses 1 through 5. And all of the Gospels, all four, talk about Palm Sunday. So Matthew talks about it, Mark and Luke and John, because it's a very special time. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which the prophet had spoken, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. One Sunday morning, the preacher was uh, addressing this uh, topic of Palm Sunday and asked the congregation, He said, has any of you ever rid a donkey, rode a donkey to church? And one lady raised her hand up in the back and said, no, but I ride with one every Sunday morning. I don't think that was nice to you. Well, there are some things here that we need to understand so that we can not only grasp them ourselves, but we can share with other people. Um, There are three things here that I want to unload and for you and I to digest today. But I want to say this, you can never disconnect and unhinge the Old Testament from the New Testament. We're living in a day uh, and a time now that even churches and ministers and uh, theological institutions are saying we don't need the Old Testament. How many of you know we need the Old Testament to understand the New Testament? I understand we're saved under the new covenant by what Christ has done, but how many of you believe that God's word in the old covenant in the Old Testament is still inspired by the Holy Spirit? So the first thing we need to know is the fulfillment of the word. Why why are we uh, looking at Palm Sunday today? Because we realize the word is being fulfilled, the fulfillment of the word. The messianic prophecies have to be accounted for, and we see that in the relationship of the authenticity of who he is. Now track with me just here for a moment. 
On Thursday, I had a meeting in Arkansas, so I drove about five and a half hours. Someone had made my reservations for me at the Holiday Inn Express. I had a little bit of time before my meeting. I got there about 30 minutes uh, early, so I went to the hotel to check in, and I got there, a very nice gentleman behind the uh, counter, and I said, I'm here to check in. He said, your name, please, and I said, Mike McCord. He said, could I have your identification? So I I got my billfold out, I got my driver's license out. How many of you think your driver's license picture is the best picture you've ever taken? The only thing worse is your passport. Passport, you look like warmed over death. But anyway, so I gave my driver's license, you know, he he looked at the license, he looked at me, looked at the license, yeah, it's the same person. And he says, thank you, Mr. McCord. He gave me my room keys, I checked in, then I went to to the meeting. So the authenticity of who I am was verified by the license. Many years ago, about 1972, I was in college and I had a friend of mine, his name was Mark, and he was about a year or two younger than me, and he had trouble getting a high enough score on his ACT test to get into school. Now, none of you will know anything about that, but uh, he came to me and he said, Mike, would you go and take my ACT test for me under my name so I can get into college. Well, how many of you know this is B.C.? Okay, I didn't get enough amens on that, but uh, I'll tell the story anyway. So this is B.C., so I tell him I will. So he gives me his driver's license. He's already enrolled in the ACT testing program at the University of Oklahoma. And back in the Stone Age, you did not have your picture on your driver's license. So I go there. And I have my number two pencil, and I'm all ready to take the ACT test in his name. So I go there to the university. There's about 30, 40, 50 people in the room. I can't remember exactly how many. So I sit down. I I show his driver's license. He's registered. I've got my pencil. I sit down. uh, They hand out the test. Then this guy comes out to address the room, and he says this. If you're here today taking the test for someone else. Let me tell you the ramifications. If we find out, not only is your friend not going to get into college, but you may not stay in college. And so he gives this long spiel, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about what he said. And uh, a little bit later, I get my pencil, I stand up, and I walk out of the room. I'm the only guy that walks out of the room. So everybody knows after the speech that I am not legitimate. So I go back to my friend Mark. I said, Mark, I love you. I don't love you that much, but uh, here's your driver's license bag. I'm not going to take the test for you. Because what am I doing? I'm an imposter, right? I'm trying to act under somebody else's name. We cannot verify the authenticity of the Messiah unless we have the Old Testament. We cannot verify the authenticity of the Messiah unless we have the Old Testament. New Testament's not written yet. There are certain things in Scripture that tells us who the real Messiah is. Have you ever watched the program to tell the truth? Will the real whoever 
Please stand up. You know, they jockey up. You know, one's up, one's down. Finally, the real guy, the real lady stands up so we know this is a real person. The Old Testament verifies the authenticity of the one who is the coming Messiah. So the verse I read to you out of Matthew 21 includes Zechariah, verse 9, chapter 9. Listen as I read. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a coat, and the foal of a donkey. You see what just happened? Right city, right form of transportation, a donkey, a symbol of peace, lowly, humbly, he's coming. So that's part of who is coming. This is chapter 9, verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So I want you to see the symbolic details of scripture here in this prophecy. Notice this, he'll take away the chariots. That's the main vehicle of war. Take away the war horses. No need for them in war. The battle bow will be broken. No need for them. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Now notice, not just nation, but what? Nations, plural. He says here, he shall rule from what? Sea to shining sea. Sea to sea. So this is not just for one country, one people. How many of you know this is an all-inclusive, universal peace that one day the Messiah is going to bring? One day Jesus is going to come as the Prince of Peace, and he's going to establish his kingdom. And how many of you know, we will beat our swords into plowshares, and we will have peace on this earth. But until then, we're living right in the middle of a difficult time. And these people are living right in the middle of a difficult time. So what are we doing? We're trying to verify today if this Messiah is the real one. So let's go all the way back to Genesis, the very first book in the Bible. This is a prophecy by Jacob, chapter 49, verses 10 through 12, and he's speaking to Judah. Everybody say Judah. Okay, about half of us did. Now let's all say it. Everybody say Judah. Judah. So Judah is the lineage that Jesus, the Messiah, comes through. So here's the words of Jacob. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations, plural, shall be his. He will tether his donkey. Wow, the donkey appears again. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. So this is a, re a reference to the Messiah that's coming, and he's coming on a donkey, and there will be a cult with him. And now we jump over to Revelation because it is also talking about one day he shall tread the grapes of wrath. His garment's going to be stained. And let me tell you, this is all about what? The coming Messiah. So we're identifying his authenticity. So scripture after scripture after scripture is defining and telling us that this one who comes must come in this way. Now here's the second thing. Not only the fulfillment of scripture and prophecy, but this is an acclamation of worship. An acclamation of worship. 
This is Matthew 21 again. Look with me at verse 9. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, they're crying out. This is not just a whimper, a whisper, but they are giving praise. They're acclaiming this one on the lowly donkey, and he's coming in to Jerusalem. He's coming from the Mount of Olives. He's going to cross the Kidron Valley. He's going to go through the beautiful gate or the eastern gate, and he's going to come into the temple area. So we're trying to figure out who he is because in that city, the question is asked, who is this? Who is this? Now, I want you to track with me just for a moment. There are three feasts, Jewish feasts, that the Lord said, if you're able, you need to come. It is the Feast of Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So think about this. From all over Palestine, the region around there, Asia Minor, Eastern Europe, the Far East, Northern Africa, people are coming in by the tens of thousands on Passover week. So this is the first day of the week, Palm Sunday, he is going into Jerusalem. And there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people there in the environment of Jerusalem. And now Jesus is coming in, what we call the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. Now, notice what they're saying. You are the son of David. What's it doing? It's telling who he is, his authenticity. He comes in the name of the Lord, and they're crying out, Hosanna, Savior, save us, rescue us, and that's what the word Hosanna means. They're saying, we need help. Anybody here ever need help? Have you cried out to the Lord for help? You know, sometimes my prayer wasn't really great theologically. It was just, God, help me. You ever prayed that prayer? Lord, I'm in trouble. Help me. I remember a story from long ago. People were debating the best way to pray. Some say, well, when you pray, you've got to be on your knees. You need to pray on your knees. Some said, well, no. You just need to fold your hand, bow your head. Some said, well, no. You can stand, raise your hands. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to pray. And the telephone guy said, the best prayer I ever prayed was hanging upside down from a telephone pole. How do you know the posture doesn't matter? You just need help. And they're saying, Hosanna in the highest, son of David, coming in the name of the Lord. We need help. Rescue us. Save us. We need a Savior. Now, where does that come from? Again, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. This comes from Psalm 118. Now, some of the people in the crowd, I'm sure they knew what that psalm said. Some may not, but as they said it, you know what they're doing? There again, they're fulfilling prophecy. They're fulfilling the prophetic word. Now, this is verse 22 through 26. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save us now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what are they doing? They're fulfilling the prophetic word in Psalm 118. And the, the, the title, Lord, here is all in caps. You know what that title is? It's Jehovah. So here he is. He's being authenticated as the Messiah because of prophecy and scripture. 
He's coming into the acclamation of worship, and people are lining the road. They're paving the road with their garments, their cloaks, their outer vestures. They're pulling the branches off the trees. Only John uses the term palm leaves. And, you know, you, you can spread palms before the Lord all the time. They're right here. Okay, some of you get that on the way home. So every Sunday when you come in here, if you want to lift your palms to the Lord, you can do that. Now, if you've been taught against it, just throw that out the window and lift your palms to the Lord, okay? Can I hear an amen to that? I'm just telling you, this is acclamation of worship because of who he is and what he's done. Now, there are people, I'm going to guess, by the thousands that are along this pathway. And as Jesus comes in, they take him and they put some of the garments on that donkey. And I believe it's Luke says they set him on the donkey. Some passages says he sat on the donkey, but Luke says they set him on a donkey. Listen, if the Lord is going to be the Lord of your life, you have to set him in your heart. Can I hear an amen? You've got to set him on, in, on, on your heart and in your heart. Listen. He may be at the door knocking, but you've got to open the door. So they set him on the donkey. He's making that entry. By the thousands, they're lining his path. Some are going before him. Some are coming after him. And they're worshiping him. They're praising him. And these are excited, vocal worshipers. And these people are in expectation. Now, who are these people? Well, Jesus has been ministering for about three, three and a half years. Can you imagine how many lives he's touched in three, three and a half years? The Bible says he's been on the west side of Jordan. He's been on the east side of Jordan. He's been up in northern Galilee. He's been down to the southern region, uh, all the way up to Syria. His fame has went everywhere. Uh, people have heard him speak. I'm sure many of them have had miracles performed by him or they've had someone who's been touched by his ministry, his life, his, his miraculous healings. So I want to give you a little uh, backup. And, and if I was the press secretary, I'd say, let's circle back. And uh, this is Matthew 4. Some of you need to watch the news. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Now, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I'm going to wait just for a minute for you to let this soak in. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus went about all Galilee, verse 23, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went out through all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes, what great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So here Jesus, for three, three and a half years, had been performing signs, wonders, miracles. So let me just give you my version. I believe in that crowd that day, there were thousands of people that had been touched by the ministry and the life of Jesus. I believe Lazarus was there, 
probably Mary and Martha. Now let me tell you why I believe that. Because he had just come from Jericho and he went where? To Bethany. That's where his friends lived. And most likely he spent the night there. The next day, where's he going? He's going into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. So Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead, probably Mary Magdalene has been there and is there because she had uh, demons cast out of her. Maybe the man from Gadra, who the demons were cast into pigs, the one who was in the tombs, maybe he was there. What about the family of Jairus, whose 12-year-old daughter was sick and as Jesus is going to his house, there was a woman who had an issue of blood that stopped him from getting there, which Jairus thought was on time. And she touched the hem of his garment and he stopped. And he said, who touched me? And this woman who had the issue of blood is now healed. Maybe she was there. Maybe the family of Jairus were in Jesus went into that bedroom and everybody laughed at him said, there's nothing you can do. She's already dead. And he turns to Jairus and said, hey, just keep believing. Keep your faith. How many of you, sometimes you just got to keep your faith. And he went in there and he took her hand and he said, young maid, young lady, arise. And that 12-year-old girl was resurrected from the dead and he presented her back to those parents. Goodness gracious. Maybe a group from the 5,000 that he fed was there. Now, we know there were 5,000 men if they were married and had a couple of kids. How many of you know there might have been 20,000 people there? Then he fed 4,000. There again, there might have been 10,000 people there. The lepers that he said, go show yourself to the priest. Maybe they were there. How about the guy who washed his eyes in the pool of Siloam? Maybe he arrived could be the man who had the withered hand in the synagogue. Maybe he was there. You know what's happening? Every one of those persons there are glorifying God because they have personally been touched by the hand and the ministry and the power of Jesus Christ. They have a testimony, don't they? Here they are. They're gathered there. And they're worshiping the Lord. Folks, how many of you believe with me that Jesus should be worshipped and praised. Have you ever heard this? If you hold your voice, even the rocks will cry out. This is the scene. It is in this scenario that passage is given. Because some people are saying, quieten the crowd. Make them be quiet. It's too tumultuous. You're creating a stir. And Jesus said, if they hold their peace, the rocks are going to cry out and they're going to worship me. Goodness gracious. That's giving me God bumps just thinking about it. You know why? When we come in here, we ought to be worshipers. We shouldn't be spectators. We ought to lift our palms on Palm Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday. You know why? Because we're worshipers. We're giving the acclamation of worship just like that Palm Sunday. They're giving the Lord glory and honor because they know who he is and they know what he has done and they're worshiping him for that. Now here's a side note. Some have said on that first Sunday before Passover, when Jesus is coming from the east, Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, into Jerusalem, through the 
beautiful gate, the eastern gate, to the Temple Mount. There's another procession on the other side of the city. Many believe it is the same day that Pilate comes into Jerusalem. Now, Pilate is not going to come from the east. He's going to come from the west. And let me tell you why. Because the stronghold and the place that most of the prefects or the leaders of the Romans over the years was not in Jerusalem. Now, they had the, the, the fortress of Antonio. They had you know, offices there. They had battalions there. They had legions there. But most of them would spend their time in Caesarea. And I'll tell you why. Because that's the port. That's the link between Rome and Palestine. They have a magnificent palace, a Roman place of residence there. They have a hippodrome there. They have a huge amphitheater there that holds thousands of people. So, Pastor, how do you know that? I've been there. And I, I've stood in that theater. I, I've stood there in the remains of that palace and that port. I've stood there in the Hippodrome where they had the games and the races and, and the chariot races. I mean, listen, this is a Ben-Hur moment. And so that's where they usually stay. But the week of Passover, there are so many people coming into Jerusalem for the feast and the festival, then the prefect or the governor or the leader would go to Jerusalem because that would be a place he'd oversee during that huge amount of crowd and festivities. So think about this, can't verify it, but many have said probably that Sunday on the east side, Jesus is coming on a donkey into Jerusalem. But on the west side, Pilate is on a charger, maybe a big white horse, got all of his, all of his royal garments on. He has the Roman legions with him and the splendor of Rome and, and, and all the things that go along with it. So here the world is coming in on the west side, but Jesus is coming in on the east side. How many you know when he comes back again, he's going to come from the east, according to Scripture? And, and so we have the juxtapose. We, we, we have one against the other. Here's the world stage. Here is the lowly Messiah but I want to tell you something. During that week when all this is happening and Jesus is being judged, do you know what he told those people who are trying him? He said, the next time you see me, I won't be coming this way. <laughs> he said, the next time you see me, I'm going to be coming in all my glory with the angels of heaven. And so you and I see the lowly Lamb of God on a donkey coming into Jerusalem and there is worship and there is praise and there is acclamation. Why? Because he is the authentic one who is worthy of glory and honor and praise. And how many of you know he's still worthy of that today? And we ought to lift our palms and all of us who are uncommon believers understand this and we need to live this out every day of our life. Now, here's the third thing. It's the mission of his work. Say that with me. The mission of his work. Now, let's all say it together. The mission of his work. So when you look at this, he's not just the Messiah that brings peace, although he is. He's not just the one who is worthy of praise, and he is worthy. But he is the Lamb of God, the suffering Savior that's headed to the cross. So this is not just about one triumphal entry. This is about a mission. This is about a mandate. 
And before he goes to Jerusalem, there's a conversation prior to this among his disciples. And here's the conversation. Jesus said, let's go back to Jerusalem. Now let me tell you the response he got from that. You go back there, they're going to kill us all. We're not going to go back to Jerusalem. You know what? Jesus needed to go back to Jerusalem because he was completing his mission. How many of you are with me? He's completing his mission. Now, they don't want to go back because they already know that they have plotted to trap and to arrest and kill Jesus. And they believe that they're all going to die. And then one of them says, well, if he's going to go, let's just all go with him. Like, let's all go and die. And so he set his face like a flint. He's going to Jerusalem. Why? Because he knows he has a mission. Now, let me give you a verse here that I'm going to tie some things together. Are y'all getting anything out of this this morning? Revelation chapter 7. Let's tie this together because it's so important. Verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches. Wow. What? With palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So notice what's in their hands. What? Palm branches. So if we tie this together, listen, this is not the triumphal entry. This is in heaven. How many of you will be glad when you get to heaven? Now, I don't want to go before my time but I want to make it to heaven. And here is a scene given by John as he has this revelation of Jesus Christ. There's going to be a group in heaven standing before the throne of Almighty God of all nations, tribes, kindreds, tongues. They're going to have their white garments on, which is the righteousness of the saints given to the saints by the Lord. How many of you know you have any righteousness on your own? So yours is a filthy garment. The Bible says rags. So he took your unrighteousness and gave you his righteousness so we could stand before the throne of Almighty God, right before God, and we could wave our palms again and said, thank you for the salvation that belongs to you. And I'm a recipient of that salvation. Goodness gracious, that just make you shout in your car when you drive home. Because here they are, before the throne with palm branches in their hands. This week as I read this and reread it and thought about it, this is what I know. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will be, a, be your teacher. How many of you know the Holy Spirit's going to be your teacher? And be, be the one who reveals things to you. So I'm thinking about this and knowing that I'm going to be preaching today. and I thought about Revelation chapter 12. The Bible says we're overcomers. Do you know you're an overcomer? According to Scripture, you're an overcomer. And there's two things that make you an overcomer. Now let me talk about the first one here. The first one is the word of your testimony. Say that with me. The word of your testimony. That crowd that day, they had a testimony. You say, well, what do you mean they had a testimony, Pastor? Well, if I'm a leper... 
and, and I'm dying of leprosy. And one day Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And as I go, and I'm healed, and I look at this leprous body that I've been living with, and all of a sudden it is pure and holy and clean and healed. Let me tell you, that's a testimony. If I've been demon-possessed by a legion of devils and Jesus Christ has set me free, honey, that is a testimony. If I've been blind, but now I see, that's a testimony. Oh, blind Bartimaeus may have been in that crowd, right? Because Jesus, he, he's coming from Jericho to Bethany to the triumphal entry, and as he leaves Jericho, Here's a man that's blind, and as Jesus passes by, he hears the ruckus, and he says, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, well, what can I do for you? Now, the blind guy probably says, duh. I'm blind. I'd like to have my sight. And Jesus said, let it be according to your faith. So did, did Bartimaeus have a testimony? Yes. Maybe Zacchaeus was there, because he was in Jericho up a tree. <laughs> And the Lord did something in his life. So all of these people who maybe ate of the five loaves and the two small fish, they had a testimony. That was a miracle. Or, or maybe you, you saw Jesus walk on water. That's a testimony. These people are full of different, individual, powerful testimonies. But I want to tell you something. They're not complete. See, uh, Peter, James, and John had a testimony. I mean, he called them from the seashore, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Peter saw Jesus heal his mother-in-law. Hopefully he was grateful for it, I'm not for sure. <laughs> that day in his mother-in-law's home, there in uh, that region, everybody came out because Jesus is there. The Bible says he healed them all. I don't know how many people were there, but the Bible says he healed them all. No matter what condition you had, disease, sickness, demon possession, the Bible says, and he healed them all in Capernaum. Whoever came that day, he healed them all. Now we know some cities, he could do no great miracle because of their lack of faith, but there, that day, it says he healed them all. They all had a testimony. This is what Jesus did for me. But they're still not complete. We're made overcomers by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. Now let me tell you why I said he's on mission. Because you and I will never be complete without the blood of the Lamb. You see, even if you had a healing, or if God helped you with your finances or your marriage or whatever, and if you don't accept what he did at the cross... You're still incomplete. So if we're going to be true overcomers, we're made overcomers by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. So Jesus realized, I, I, you know, I appreciate you know, the triumphal entry. I appreciate your laudation, your acclamation, your worship, your praise. But I am on a mission, and that mission is the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world, and the cross is before him. So he is going to go to the cross to do what only he can do. Can I hear an amen to that? Only what he can do, and he is going to have to shed his blood. On the first day of that Passover week, 
There are thousands of lambs being brought into Jerusalem. Most of you know the story. As they left Egypt, how did they get out? Well, this is what the Bible says. God said, take a lamb without spot or blemish, a male, first year, and you bring that lamb into your home, you examine the lamb, and then you slay the lamb, and you take the blood, and you put it over your door and along the sides of the post of your door, because death is coming, and if your home is not covered under the blood, you will have death enter into your house. And now this Passover has been going for centuries and centuries and centuries. And now the true Lamb of God is going into Jerusalem. And while the priests and homes are slain, the Passover Lamb, God's Lamb, is hanging between heaven and earth. And he is shedding his blood so you and I can be free from our sin. You say, well, Pastor, will I not die? Well, listen, until Jesus comes you're probably going to die. But eternal death and spiritual death does not have to be yours. You're going to die physically, but I'm going to guarantee you you're going to live forever because the blood that he shed and you accepting him by faith and living that life that he wants you to live. So, do you love your testimony? Absolutely. But let me tell you, the testimony without the blood, you're just not complete. And as I studied that and I read that and I thought about, you know, these people have a testimony, they're worshiping, but yet there was one thing more that needed to happen. He needed to go to the cross. He needed to shed his blood. He needed to have that final act of victory. And we're going to talk about that next Sunday. And let me tell you, I'm excited about that because this is about your salvation. And this is about my salvation. It's about the whole world's salvation. We need to know the authenticity of who he is, what he did, and what he's doing in your life even today. This is not something 2,000 years ago. How many of you know this is something we're living every day of our life? And it sets you apart. Many of you have heard this story maybe at ad nauseum, but I've told it many times, and I want to share it again today. When we were building this complex and this campus, we brought in some people who were builders. We brought someone in that was uh, kind of an artist. Uh, how many know buildings have a flow? There's some feng shui that, that happens. And we brought a guy in from Texas, and he was a very well uh, noted person. Um, he, he has uh, artwork and, and sculptures in the Betty Holly Museum uh, at the Alamo. And so we were connected. And he came up two or three times and kind of helped us with the layout. You know, anywhere you sit in this auditorium, you feel like you're pretty close. And the colors and the seating and, and, and the different things throughout the campus. And so he and I would meet two or three times, and we were at breakfast one morning. And his name was Jim, and, and Jim was a leftover hippie. Anybody remember the hippie era? Someone said, if you remember it, you weren't there. But anyway, it's... I mean, I kind of remember it. I was on the tail end of that. So, you know, back in the 60s. And, and so Jim was kind of like that. So we're having breakfast one morning, and, you know, we're talking about this. And so he knows I'm a pastor, and I'm a Christian. And, and so he, he said, the Pastor, he said, you know, a lot of people believe that there was a young rabbi in Palestine that went to the Far East and studied the, uh, the life and the teachings of Buddha And then came back to Palestine and Israel and started a new religion. How do you know where he's going with this story? 
So I listened. I didn't interrupt him. He told me the story. And he said, and they, they believe he came back and, and he started a new religion. And of course, he's talking about Christianity. So I, I was being polite as I could. So when he finished the story, I said, well, Jim, I said, what Buddha should have done if he was a contemporary of Jesus, he should have left the Far East and came to Israel and studied the teaching of Jesus to learn how to resurrect from the dead. And he didn't know what to say. He said, uh, uh, he said, Pastor, I'd like to talk to you some more about that. I said, Jim, I'd love to talk to you about it. Let me tell you what happens. That weekend, the resurrection sets you and I apart from every religion, ever, every philosophy, every <laughs> stream of thought. It is absolutely the defining moment to set you apart from every other religion in the world that's ever been. Can I hear an amen? It's absolutely the truth. Because a lot of people have died for causes, haven't they? They've been martyrs. A lot of people are great, maybe philosophers or teachers, but I'll guarantee you none of them has ever risen from the dead. But your Savior has. I was reading an article years ago, and in the article it was uh, two Frenchmen and one of them turned to his friend and he said, you know what, I'm thinking about starting a new religion. I just don't know how to do it. And his friend said, I'll tell you a good start. Why don't you die, res resurrect from the dead? That'll give you a good start. But how do you know nobody can do that except Jesus? Has people died and been resurrected? Yes. Has anyone died, resurrected to never die again? No. He is the first fruits. He's the only one who's ever, ever done that. And that's the one you serve. That's the Messiah. Authenticated by Scripture. Because when he went into town, there was a whole other group, and this is their question. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this one on the donkey? Who is this one that's being shouted to, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. i tell you who he is. He's the Messiah that has been spoken about from Genesis. That's the one. He is the Savior. Hosanna, rescue us, save us. He's the one that's headed to the cross at the end of the week. He's the one who loves you so much that he gave everything that you and I might be saved. That's who he is. And my friends, that's still who he is. That's who he'll be tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And that's who he'll be throughout eternity. And that's who you and I are worshiping. Because he is the Savior. Won't you bow your head with me today? We are so thankful you joined us today. We would love to hear from you at rayofhopepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know how you were encouraged and how we can pray for you. Remember, Christ in you is the hope of glory, and hope changes everything.